Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonsen. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. Today's guest on the show is Lewis Samuels. Uh, Lewis is a surf journalist known for creating Surfline's power rankings and the post-surf blog. As a senior writer for Surfer Magazine, he wrote the Borrowed Boards series, as well as profiles of surfers from Shane Dorian to Bruce Irons. Um, His work has been in magazines across the world, including a profile of Kelly Slater for Esquire. Um, What's really cool about this is that Lewis and I actually started messaging really before I knew who Lewis was. And then putting it all together, I realized that I had been reading his work for years. And he is an incredibly deep thinker, um, having spent a lifetime in the world of surf at the most competitive levels within surf journalism, following the tour, getting to know all the pros, intimate relationship with the surf culture community, especially in Northern California where he lives. he is, uh, I mean, if you look up uh, pictures of Lewis, he incredibly talented in big surf, um, getting barreled. He would say that it's not big surf. He says that on the show, but from what I see in the photos, um, pretty pretty big heavy surf. I mean, he surfs Mavericks, so he's not shy of uh, of power in the surf. And he became foil brained over the last couple of years, and he talks about how that happened through COVID, being a little bit more locked, having a family wanting to stay a little bit closer to home and goes through what that's felt like the the freedom that that has provided him and i think that you will appreciate the um, perspective of someone like lewis so well thought out in the surf world and what it's felt like to move into the foiling world and what he's seeing as benefits and um everything. So I think you guys are going to love that. Um, and thank you, Lewis, for coming on the show. A uh, couple notes before we hop in what's been going on. Uh, Brian Finch, Foil the World Brian, host of the Foil the World podcast, uh, has just announced that he has signed with Unifoil. And I have to say this is a really cool one because for the last couple years, um, you know, Brian and I are getting to surf together and it's going to be really fun to that he, you know, a couple months ago got the foils and uh, he's frothy on it. And so that's been really neat. I think he's going to do really cool things with Unifoil and uh, taking on, I think, a pretty big role there. So pretty epic. Uh, congratulations, buddy. Stoked for you. Um, and yeah, let's just dive into the show uh, with Lewis. It's a long one, uh, but it's a good one. So um, hope everyone is well. Lewis, how are you? Good, thanks. Just sitting around in a very stormy morning in Northern California with trees going sideways in the wind as I look out the window here in the country. But all good. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And it's an interesting one where you joined the forum a while back. And I read through the forum pretty consistently. And you write so much different than anyone else does on the forum, which is amazing. And But I didn't know who you were yet. And it wasn't until we started talking that I realized that I have read your work for 
at least 15 years probably and it's very cool that you're on the show it's very cool that you've started to foil and i can't wait to hear your perspective on all of the above so i don't know where you want to start but how did you find yeah. foiling i guess so foiling for me was kind of one of those like when is it time to quit surfing type of endeavors that i think i've been knocking against the edges of like the, the benefit to kind of cost ratio and surfing as an activity in my life for a long time just by being so all in on it like it had been just the obsessive focus of my life since i was god 15 14 years old and even before that and it just started to feel like i was getting to that point particularly in the, the beginning of the pandemic when i think we were all going in circles in our life that like it's kind of funny the name of your podcast is, has the word progression in it because I think I was just feeling a general lack of progression in my life when it came to surfing. But it was kind of at that mm -hmm. point where maybe I'd reached the the pinnacle of what I was going to really do at whatever it was at that point, early 40s, and it was kind of all downhill from there. And I think I was really looking for something that would allow me to get back to that feeling of being able to just really enjoy the ocean on a, a simpler level in a way that wasn't caught up in your own relationship to just so many layers of the baggage that comes with surfing is both like a, a culture and a focus for your life. And you know, I used to write about surfing a lot. I haven't done as much in a while as other stuff has taken my focus. But like at one point for Surfer Magazine, I did an article on this idea of can one wave change your life? And I think part of what I was looking for was that idea of maybe you could reach that summit of the mountain, that this was all like a, a quest we were on that would lead to some conclusion and then you could be free of it you didn't have to have it just like <laughs> taking up all your time to the detriment of everything else in your life because i had certainly reached that point where it was clearly taking away from my ability to to work to spend time with my family to enjoy the time i was spending with my family if it happened to be good waves somewhere there was just so many ways that was costing me and when i did that article on that idea of can one wave change your life i got to talk to all these great surfers this is now like a decade back or something and Everybody from Shane Dorian to Greg Long to Greg Knoll, who was a big wave pioneer who kind of is credited with riding what at the time had been the biggest wave and claimed history, purported history. There's some doubt to his whole story at this point, but that was 69 and this great swell in the North Shore and was supposed to have ridden this wave in Macaha that no one photographed that was like, that was it. Clearly the biggest wave, heaviest thing anyone ever done in surfing. And then he was supposed to have just quit after that. That was the story that got kind of forwarded, which again, is not entirely true. But like when I talked to him about it, he answered the phone and was seemingly happy to just talk about it out of nowhere with someone he had never met before. And he described it to me as taking a giant shit that like all of a sudden it just like kind of <laughs> relieved himself of so many things in his life that he no longer had to do this. He no longer had to chase it. He didn't have to try to be the gnarliest guy catching the biggest wave and he was free of it. And he just kind of moved on and became a fisherman in Northern California and led a good family life. And uh, I guess I got to the point where I was thinking that maybe the only wave that was gonna change your life was the one that was gonna change it for the, for the worse. And I talked to guys who had that experience, like Jesse Blauer, who was paralyzed surfing Zumo when he was 16 and what could have gone on to be a pretty successful pro surfer probably if that hadn't happened. And that I was wondering whether those were the only kind of life-changing waves I was gonna get. And the other thing people talked about was that idea of the first wave they ever caught. So many pro surfers I talked to who had had iconic rides in surfing history, that was still the thing that they talked about that came to mind when asked about a wave that had changed their life it was the first wave they caught so with foiling i think it was a way to try to get back into that mindset where 
you had that ability to have the best session of your life every time you went out there. And that really appealed to me, that idea of finding a way to be back onto that progression track in life where like things were actually moving forward as opposed mm-hmm. to just going in circles and circles. I think we all had that kind of Groundhog Day feeling in the pandemic when we were in lockdown and like we were stuck just doing the same thing every day. And I was surfing the same spots I'd surfed for 30 years and I'd seen the best days at those places. It wasn't gonna be any better, it kind of felt like that. And so that idea of being onto that different way of looking at the ocean, like being able to find something new and compelling and each day even at your local break i think all that appealed to me and that kind of got me to the beginning stage Gee, it's a little less than a year ago now i'm on my first year still was it love at first flight i don't know that it was pretty magical the first time i had the feeling of being up on foil but the people who know me i'm a pretty cynical guy pretty much just full stop across the board <laughs> and I think that, like, it's easy for me to see the downsides and things. And probably I was a little caught up on the perceived, like, dangerous nature of the activity with the foil under me at first. And I think that was taking up so much of my mental energy that, like, I felt a little bit probably more on the adrenaline side of it than just the pure enjoyment of it. And that it was just enough, though. It was just that taste that, like, I definitely wanted to get to that point that I could be more in the moment with it and just enjoy it for what it was. But I also learned in a ridiculous way. I, the, the place I live in Northern California now, there's a, a intertidal lagoon that lets out through a narrow channel. And at low tide, the water really starts nuking at the end of the outgoing swing. And a guy I knew in town had actually put a buoy in and buried it in the sand and attached a tow rope to it. Oh, and he had so set cool. up He had set up this big gofoil on a kind of old board someone had, and he was trying to learn how to do it by just holding onto the tow rope and having the current go against the foil enough to give him enough lift to get up to his feet. And one day I walked over to him and I was like, shit, can I give that a try? And so that was the first time I actually got up on foil. I was like, not the normal method, I would say, of learning, was standing going against this current. And it obviously opened up a lot of ideas in my mind and also at the same time already felt more dangerous than if I had just been in the surf, kind of controlling it all myself. Because I think that was like the thing I brought to foiling to learn how to do it was the knowledge of 30-something years of surfing, which is a different path than obviously a lot of folks who come from wind sports. So in terms of prone foiling, the thing that felt super easy for me was understanding a lineup and where to sit in order to give myself the best chance to like Mm -hmm. chip into a nice, soft little ramp and just be up on my feet in a way that like I kind of understood the idea of the waiting and everything, but mostly just the lineup dynamics part that I think it's really hard for other people I've seen who are learning who don't have that surfing background to understand where to sit to make it Mm -hmm. easiest to get that opportunity to get up on foil. So I was able to take that and like just get right up on foil. I think the first wave I paddled for and then it was kind of off to the races in terms of just enjoying that activity of trying to figure out how to control the foil. But it was definitely a surfer's mentality. Like I was very focused on riding it as you would a a surfboard on a wave in a certain way that like I was starting a ride and going to the end of the wave and trying to go as far as I could. And it took me a long time to get to that point where I was like, putting together just what I could actually do with it in terms of obviously linking multiples and all the rest of it. It took me longer to pump than it should have, but I'm getting there and just having a blast doing it. It's so much fun to go through that beginner's mindset of just figuring something out again. Like I still remember that first year where I was really all in on surfing as a kid and nothing beats those memories. So to to have a chance to do that again is just huge for me. And also I think a lot of it just comes down to like effective use of quiver essentially. Surfing in Northern California, we get a really wide range of conditions throughout the year, and we get a ton of swell in the wintertime. Obviously, 
there's mavericks right down the coast and those swells that make it break are hitting all the exposed beaches too so that there's no shortage of swell and energy and that you find yourself pretty quickly either having to drive a long way to protected spots on those big days if you don't want big waves or you're going to surf big waves i always mm -hmm. wanted to surf big waves but to do that you need the right equipment so like right off the bat as a high school kid i was having to get eight foot guns and in order to surf the waves i wanted to surf around here and so it opens up your mind to that idea of needing different equipment to take advantage of like the local conditions wherever you live i think some places people live in, in surfing culture like they literally can just ride a shortboard all year long and there's a lot of people who are stuck in that mindset of just there's one surfboard that works for them and they keep replacing it maybe but they don't necessarily have a quiver that they're utilizing on a regular basis whereas for me i was used to riding boards all the way from longboards and small waves to five foot fish to 10 something guns for Mavs. And so really tuned into that idea that you need the right board in order to take advantage of the conditions. And it's a little different, I think, maybe than like the layered Kai, like gnarly guy thing where like they need the specific equipment to be able to attain that highest performance level in the most extreme activities. Around here, as a normal surfer, it's just about like literally what's the right board to go have fun on a given day and take advantage of like usually the lack of good waves. It's about trying to make the most of shitty conditions. So for me, it was almost like just super obvious where I live, there's a protected surf spot that doesn't get a lot of good waves. It was a great place to learn to surf as a kid, but just so clearly not the place you want to be as a serious surfer. Um, mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you take advantage of that? How do you look at that as an opportunity to? enjoy where you live instead of just being like in a bitter mood because you go down in the waves for one foot and mushy and you're pissed off. So I was trying to really get out of that mindset and be able to enjoy where I was, like the, the beach right in front of me, which I think is really important surfing, that like surf culture set people up always to feel bad about where they're surfing practically. Like they're always supposed to be somewhere else where there's a perfect wave instead of just enjoying the ocean in front of them. And I think in that way, it's one of the real negatives of surf culture that like you can work against by having the right quiver and that for me a foil is just so obviously the right setup to ride waves in certain conditions like just so clearly superior and it it's amazing to me that more surfers don't see that it's amazing to me as well that's a conversation that i have a few times a week with people who are newly foil brained i would say right um, it's just once the veil has been lifted it's just so obvious but that veil just seems to be i don't know opaque right like you can't really see through it until you see it until you feel yeah, it. and what's amazing to me too is that you take somebody on the beach like who knows nothing about surfing and they can see it really clearly mm -hmm. and i have this experience almost every time i go surfing that tourists will stop me or old people walking on the beach and they'll ask about the foil and be like wow like that's incredible what you're doing out there and they see really clearly that you're going faster linking waves covering all this distance and to them, it clearly is this like advancement from surfing. But then a surfer will see you going by and like they've literally gotten to the point where they're blind to it. They, they've somehow ignored all the clear benefits in favor of being hung up on that's different. It's bad. Different is bad. So it is really amazing. I mean, it's I think literally cost, animals right? on the beach, like a dog will chase you down the beach <laughs> as you're foiling. And even the dog can tell that what you're doing is more interesting than surfing. I think it's a sunk cost thing at some, to some there's, a, there's a social dynamic aspect and then there's a sunk cost dynamic. Yeah. That's kind of where I've landed. Yeah, I mean, surfing is also just, it's a really close-minded culture. And 
How did it get there? Because it wasn't, surfing didn't start as a closed-minded culture, right? I mean, it was as counterculture as you could get. Yeah, it's a really good question. And I don't know that it ever was as counterculture as it could get, or if that's just a narrative that was supposed to sell clothes to kids in the 80s when, like, I grew up and was reading surf magazines. They wanted to embrace that counterculture element to the whole thing. I, I was kind of it, more referring to like the, the early days of surfing. And that's what I look back at. And I feel like that we're kind of in right now with foiling where right. it's, it is really out there still in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think you're right. But I don't know that foiling right now in any ways is really like counterculture to me. And that, no. I think that in, in some ways, the whole idea of surfing as a counterculture activity was a bit of a, a myth in a way that I, I think that it's always been a really constrained activity in terms of fitting into these small tribal structures at local lineups and like a real level of concern for how others think of you because that impacts your status in that hierarchy in those lineups and I think it was that way pretty early on I mean I think that the narrative shifted clearly by the time you're at Malibu or something in the Gidget era to where the crowds were already impacting people's ability to have fun so that it was kind of about like your status in that local lineup having an impact on your ability to enjoy the activity. And that got towards more of that homogeny of like perspective and approach. And when you think about it, like pretty much 99% of the surfing that's like ever happened in the history of the world has happened on the wrong equipment, like full stop. (laughs) Yeah. And not just looking back historically saying, Oh, like longboards weren't the right thing for Phil Edwards to ride a pipeline in 1961. Like, all of the 70s guys were on like Lopez style single fins at beach breaks where that was not the right board, even though the whole seedless fish thing and it already happened and those boards clearly rode so much better for the like the California beach break people were, were surfing and people had even seen it at the world championships in Ocean Beach with David Nuiva ripping on a little fish. But then it went back to what Lopez is riding at pipe and people just riding stuff that doesn't work at their local spots. And same thing with shortboards that are geared towards pro surfers being the dominant thing that people rode for most of the 80s, 90s, oddies, like boards that would work for Slater were not working for a normal surfer at a normal beach. And you could argue we've finally gotten away from that maybe the last 10 years, but it's still been pretty dominant in surfing throughout its history. And I think part of that, again, is that why is everyone on the same equipment? Like it's that closed-mindedness that comes with having to fit into that group in order to get the wave. That like if you paddled out on the wrong board or even the wrong color wetsuit in spots in Northern California for like decades, you're just not going to get a wave. Mm -hmm. So I think it leads to that maybe more closed-minded perspective on things. I think that actually in foiling over the last year and a half, the trend of, of kind of the, a lot of the brands has gone to a place in performance that isn't optimal for the average rider. That was one of the things that, that I started to right. pick up on about a year ago was these really small, high aspect. They're amazing, but there's a lot of people that you have to have a certain skill set to be able to get anything out of that or else you're just going to get more frustrated. And I think that the beautiful thing about foiling is the abundance of the ocean. And once you start limiting your ride time based on a gear choice, you start to take away a little bit. So that's actually something I've talked about a few times on the show. Is Yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, that it's being driven in some ways by trying to replicate that blueprint that's worked for other action sports on that the thing that sells product is high performance. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you show somebody ripping on a high-performance piece of equipment, and the perspective is that that's what's going to get 
average Joe to go buy that piece of equipment, even though they're never going to be able to do that air or whatever thing it is that the equipment's maybe unlocking for you. So it's been an interesting thing. I mean, even just like in my limited experience working on surfboards and just when I say working on surfboards, I mean, just trying to figure out what to order for myself to have it work for my local conditions. I haven't shaped myself. I don't know that much about design, but I've been lucky to work with some really good shapers over the years, in particular Mayhem. And he, he started doing custom boards for me and we started really trying to tune the stuff up for the waves where I lived. And it meant going away from what other people were doing at the time. And trying to get, particularly for big waves, these higher volume guns that had more paddle power because you just have to do a shitload of paddling around here. And it was less about these beautiful, sleek, kind of pipeline style guns. And so that led to, we made this board called the Retro Gun, which like a ton of people have had a lot of fun on in surf spots all over the world because it's geared more towards that average surfer being able to like get into the wave of their life. And that so much of that was just about positioning and being able to actually catch that wave and, and get to your feet. And then after that, the board will still handle a good wave and a good barrel. But it's kind of similar to that idea of what if we're not designing for the best surfers? Like what if we're designing for more everyday surfers? And obviously fish and boards like that kind of check that box as well. And I think you're seeing more and more of that. And, and I can see in foiling now, it sounds like what you've been doing is kind of similar in that way of trying to balance the, the performance aspects with that ease of use. And in foiling, that means obviously like the glide and the pump. Yeah, I mean, for, for my own selfish purposes, because <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't have the world's greatest cardio, so I hate it when I'm working so hard. One of my favorite things, stories about Matt Biolis Mayhem, you know, he, the, the rocket, I think, epitomizes what we're talking about right now. I mean, yeah. the rocket is just such a fun board, and I feel like if everyone traded in, or at least anyone who lives on the East Coast trades in their shortboard, for a rocket style board, they're gonna have so much more fun. But when it came out, guys were absolutely ripping on it, but they weren't getting scored in contests if they wrote it in contests. Right. So he, he made the stealth, which just looked more like a short board, but was essentially the same thing. And then it's just the whole culture was pushing towards things that were not optimized for, for fun in, in a way. I thought that was such an interesting thing. You had to reshape a board just so it looked good in contests. Right. And Literally the nose, it just needs to have like mm -hmm. a pointier nose. And mm -hmm. uh, I got eared practically in my eye by a board, I don't know, about 10 years ago now where I pulled into a barrel and it clamped on me at the end. And somehow as I fell, the board shot up and like literally grazed my cheek and I had to get a bunch of stitches and then went up into the top of my eye socket and had to get a bunch of stitches there. It just missed my eye. Oh God. And I called up Mayhem and I was like, I want to do boards that don't have a pointy nose. Let's cut the fucking pointy nose off. <laughs> and Herbie Fletcher had done it in the seventies on his boards. There's been boards that had squared off little noses. And uh, I, I wanted like a, a short board just with squaring off the last couple inches of the tip. And even then Mayhem wouldn't do it. <laughs> like he <What>? literally, <laughs> the order came in, it still had the pointy noses on it. And maybe it was just like, one more hassle, but I was like, man, we just can't get away. At the same time, George Greeno in Australia had wrote into some local newspaper in Byron Bay where he lived about a surfing accident that was similar that happened. And he had just told all the surfers out there to take a made jar lid and trace it onto the tip of their shortboard's noses and just cut off the last three inches. And he said, board's going to work just the same. Just cut it off, glass it over. Like, what the hell is wrong with you people? That makes so much sense. So that's something right now in foiling that we're starting to see, or we've seen over the last little bit, there's some wingtips that are just destroying people. And yeah. I've been trying to convince people to cut off wingtips. I mean, maybe 
one in 20 riders will be able to tell a difference. I actually think it usually gets a little better and it kind of loosens up the foil a little bit, maybe at the cost of a touch of pump. But after I started, I did a, I did a video, you'd probably appreciate this. I did a video a long time ago, this one, the Kujira tail, which is a brilliant tail. I love that tail. When it first came out, it was so sharp that I did a, a video where I cut sushi for us for dinner with the tail just like right. stock, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was trying to like, it was a PSA to try to get people to cut off the tips. But yeah, it, there, there are little things I think that can create more safety and that don't actually cost performance. And I don't know how we right, and it. traditionally in surfing culture, like you can't even do those things. I mean, we went through an era where Tom Carroll had nose guard on his board and a helmet on at pipe, but then pretty soon it went away from that. And mm -hmm. it's amazing again, like how surfers have just really rejected equipment that can make the sport safer or even just like your surfing experience more enjoyable. I mean, like I went to Indo for years and years and years, every season, spent a bunch of time there and I'd wear reef booties because I was from Northern California. I was used to surfing with booties every session. Like it was the way I felt kind of connected to my board in a way that was positive for me and like get it if you don't wear booties and you don't like the feel of it. But for me, it was like, hey, this makes it easier for me to surf well, and I can walk across this field of urchins at the end of my session at G-Land and like, not be picking urchins out of my feet and dealing with infections instead of surfing. And still, like, at that point, people were doing it, and I think now in current Indo, nobody wears reef booties pretty much. It's like only the old weird guy, barrel guys from Australia who will do it. It's like considered to be just the kookiest thing in the world to have reef booties on. <laughs> like, they look bad in photos. That's what it came from, is that literally photo editors started telling those guys on boat trips that they had to take the booties off if they wanted to get photos published that it looked look shitty in the photo and then now you have every surfer out at ulu's like stumbling across the reef getting cuts if you're there all season long and your feet get tough and used to it great good for you mm -hmm. like i'm stoked you get to surf that much but it is funny again yeah people just get really hung up on these ideas so you've just finished your first year in foiling yeah wow do you think it added, it was a, a lifestyle benefit? What was your overall demeanor of your first year foiling versus your last year surfing? I don't know if there's anything that you can draw from that. Was there a change? Yeah, for sure. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, just allowed me again to like go through all those first year activity feelings in a really positive way where it just that opportunity for stoke in like the worst day pretty much and that some of that has to just do with your ability to put something together that you haven't before and it's also can feel really quantifiable in foiling obviously that i haven't even got into the whole using an apple watch or anything else to track my performance out there but just the idea that like you're like okay i just linked whatever four waves for the first time and that could happen on the shittiest day that that changes your perspective so it, it got me really stoked just to take advantage of bad local conditions and just the, the timing benefits that i can go out there for an hour and totally wear myself out and uh, I definitely kind of have that thing like you got to walk a dog or something where I pretty much need to go and just get some exercise every day to clear my head and do other shit in life and so that's so rad that I can get that from hopping around out there like an idiot in one foot waves and be just like really tired at the end of all of it and have that surf stoke feeling because I was at the point where I, I was in decent enough shape from surfing every day that like I didn't ever get winded paddling that wasn't a thing I had experienced maybe since my first year of surfing and I remember having that conversation with my wife when she was talking about going surfing with me. She dabbles a little bit, but would not call herself a serious surfer. And she gets winded paddling, right? And it never had occurred to her that wasn't the same experience for me, that like I could just sit there and paddle for 
literally hours straight as hard as I could without feeling vaguely winded because I was just used to it. And so duck diving at Ocean Beach or something, you're just caught inside for 45 minutes, literally just sitting there getting work, duck diving and same thing. Like I wasn't winded. So I think that in a weird way, I wasn't getting that exercise benefit almost anymore from surfing. And then also just being able to kind of just be a locavore. It's like those people who you go to a restaurant where it's farm to table and they're really proud of the fact that everything on that menu is grown locally within whatever, however many miles of that restaurant on local farms. And I think it's kind of the same thing in a way with foiling where you can maybe appreciate your local spot wherever you live practically in the world. Like there don't even have to be waves. You could be winging or doing something else in a way that allows you to just go against that kind of like FOMO lifestyle that we always should be somewhere else. That like we're not leading a good life if we're not on the boat in Indo or just locally, I think here in Northern California, it ends up with people just driving a lot for waves that guys would spend three hours driving around trying to get to Santa Cruz to get a slightly better wave to do a turn on a shortboard. And it, it's kind of taken me out of that whole rat race of like having to drive for surf so that it's given me a lot of time back, which is great. And yeah, I think it, in terms of my relationship with surfing, it's been interesting in that it's like a little hard for me still to balance the two. And I definitely think that maybe for Kailani or something, it's like an effective crossover sport to help their surfing. But for somebody at my age and skill level, it's a little hard to be all in on both activities. Like something kind of has to budge. And so for me, that's been a really interesting thing to try to take away some of that focus on like scoring good waves and just surfing in general and not be as caught up in that and be able to have those different experiences and different ways of looking at the ocean. Do you find yourself missing surfing? Are there, are there feelings that you get in surfing that you're not getting in foiling? If you take away just your lifetime love of surfing, if you think, if you don't think about that, like the way you get out of the water, your, your overall yeah. happiness, is there a difference between the two? I mean, for me at my level of skill, there is, uh, and obviously there's a big skew there still. Like I'm not just as good of a foiler as I am a surfer and I'm not that great of a surfer but there's stuff mm -hmm. I can do that I've um, seen you in some insane barrels man yeah I mean I've there's like one thing I can do which is surf medium-sized lefts and kind of like effectively barrel dodge to where you can take a photo where it almost looks like I'm getting a great barrel <laughs> I um, don't know about that but I can survive those situations definitely and that's the thing I think that I haven't gotten to that stage of my foiling yet where I'm having those same experiences or feelings you get surfing triple overhead waves and like pulling into a barrel and making it like that. The drop on big waves is for me totally a different thing than when I'm getting foiling that like I'm still trying to avoid any steep drop foiling and make it easy on myself. And, and so mostly just barrels. You like for me, it is this like limited thing though that was really about front side barrels that I'm really like overly focused just on that. I want to go left and I want to pull into barrels and I'm like less excited or worried about doing turns anymore. I like don't even go right. It's totally pathetic. I've like pretty much abandoned backside surfing as a concept. And there's still that part of me though that yeah, I'm really focused on wanting to keep up my level of commitment to surfing that I'm able to go and still find a pit in a day that there's ones to be had. For me, it's again back to that idea of the quiver that like I'm just, if there's good waves and I can shortboard them, I'll probably go shortboard for sure. I'm not going somewhere else to foil. I'm just taking advantage of what's in front of me or nearby my house. And if there's an opportunity to go get barreled or surf a nice clean day with bigger waves on an eight foot gun, like I'll totally go do it instead of foiling. But then it kind of works itself out that you just have something to do every day. There's plenty yep. of days to foil around here too. 
Yeah, that's pretty much where most of us have landed here as well. We don't get those great surf days anymore. I mean, yeah. in Florida, it's hard. It's interesting. Like I lived in Costa Rica for 11 years and then moving back in the first year, there wasn't a day in Florida that was an average day in Costa Rica. And that was the, right. the, the height of depression. And so a lot of my foil froth comes from the fact that that experience, the move back, and then finding something that is just as fun as living there and more fun now with what we've opened up, it just completely yeah. just changed the landscape. And so I've become just this just evangelist for foiling because I wanted to do that for everyone else, I guess. It's kind of amazing. I mean, there is this almost like religious quality to it in terms of it felt that way for me. And I'm not a religious person, so... I'm not speaking from experience here, but it, it almost was this like losing your religion type thing, like converting to a, a new religion to go from that surf focus to opening up the notion that you could see things a different way and foil. And uh, I think it was in some ways actually that like foundational to my identity at that point, that simply giving up the notion of chasing good surf every day was a big change that, that did almost feel like a, that level of epiphany. And then you do see that kind of thing where now I want to share it with people. I'm trying to get like my friends involved and, I'm thankful to the friends that got me started on the whole foil journey. And I shout out to like Bianca Valenti, who's a really good big wave surfer. She has done all those contests at Jaws and in the running for the Red Bull Magnitude biggest wave of the year thing and everything. And she loaned me her Lyft 200 or something. That was like the first foil I, I rode. And then a local guy, Mickey Merch here, who just is a total shredder doing backflips and stuff, foiling and an overall super interesting guy has an organic farm and it's just like one of the best organic farmers around epic epic vegetables and then foiling shredding and paragliding and all sorts of shit he, he loaned me his old equipment and that's what got me started and makes a huge difference so now i want to do the same thing i'm trying to drag other people into it and get friends of mine who are good surfers and shortboarders also at that same point in their life who are like in their 40s and you can see it starting to go downhill i'm like you got to do this before it's too late you could still pick this up and have years of enjoyment ahead of you Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're on just this downward trajectory of getting bitter about your declining ski level and like how the waves suck and it's more crowded than it used to be. And like guys get really bitter as they age in surfing. I mean, that's it's so hard to go against that. There's a few older local surfers around here who've done a good job of staying stoked, but it is hard, man. I mean, especially Northern California, the waves are pretty abusive. It's cold. It's a lot of work it's not a great place to grow old as a surfer and uh, finding anything you can do to keep that stoke alive i mean completely separate from foiling and surfing and any of it just as i've seen the people around me grow old the generation my parents generation and above it's so striking the difference between the people who stay engaged learning things and having activities that they are passionate about and the ones who don't like you can really see clearly over the course of a couple decades, if people don't have a thing like that to be excited about when they wake up in the morning, like they literally just kind of don't end up lasting nearly as long. And then one of my friends, his dad is 93 and he's doing it all still. Like he's playing music, he's doing oh. ceramics. He's like just so skilled at so many things. Like again, like epic gardening and organic vegetable scene in his greenhouses and every day he wakes up with purpose still at 93 and he's not foiling he's not surfing but it's just about having that thing in life that you want to like tune in and get good at and also i think obviously the obvious benefits of just being able to detach yourself from the fucking world we live in right now <laughs> with 
the way that people interact with everything through a screen, essentially, if you can find a way that you're not doing that for a couple hours a day, like that alone is huge. And the sad reality is like for a lot of people that that may only happen now when they're going in the ocean. And even that might be coming to a close soon enough where I guess people already have their Apple watches out there, but that, that might be the only hour people get in a day where they're not like getting hit by pings or sucked into shit. That's somewhere other than where they are in that moment in time. Like just to be in the moment at your local spot in the water, paying attention to shit happening around you is that's a feat in 2023. You've already accomplished something amazing if you can do that. I completely agree. I completely agree. I, I talk about it sometimes. I'm so addicted to downwinding right now because I love just the paddling offshore for 15 minutes and you're out there generally by yourself and right. you're in this just whole other ecosystem. And sometimes you see really big things. It reminds you how small you are. It's like, it's like a real adventure. And I come in from those runs with a different feeling than I come in from even an epic foil or surf session out back where you're still like kind of somewhat attached to land, albeit right. proximity wise. When you get that full differentiation and you're just like in this whole other world for half an hour. I had a, a 40 minute flight the other day, which was my longest amount of time on foil that I've had. And I came in and it was, yeah, it was just the coolest feeling I, I think I've ever had in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's something I still have to look forward to because I'm not even, I haven't even scratched the surface. Like I'm still just straight up prone foiling and super happy trying to build up that skill level to be able to, I don't know what, you're, probably you're for me now, if I got three minutes up on foil linking waves, that would probably be about as good as it gets so that if I can beat that like there's just all these little kind of next steps in that progression for me to look forward to and I'm sure I'll probably get sucked down into the rabbit hole with downwind or anything else but that in some ways I'm almost happy for that to be in my future still like I don't feel like I need to do it all at once right now it's like pretty rad to have that stuff still to, to build up to and also I'm lucky enough to live somewhere that like we get some of those experiences you're describing just going surfing there's spots mm. around us in Northern California that are pretty rugged and open ocean literally in some cases a lot of paddling involved to get out to them to surf a big wave or something that you get in that same kind of feeling you're out there in the middle of elements in like exposed ocean with the food chain coming into play and all the rest of it so it's scratching some of that same itch you're talking about but i'm sure mm -hmm. it would just be next level to do some of the stuff that all the people who are pushing the edges of foiling are doing i'm definitely oh, in awe I, I... of what people are accomplishing it's crazy the, the guys who are leading right now in, in those aspects, it's just blowing my mind. I mean, 100 kilometers on foil, stuff like that is just, it's so otherworldly to me still. Yeah, it's science fiction. I mean, there's still yeah. like those moments where it just blows my mind what you can do even with like the, the limited skills and equipment that I have. You're just like, wow, what would Simmons say if he saw this? Simmons was like this really early design leader in surfing who pushed the sport in terms of introduction of things like first twin fins and trying to make boards lighter and get get that edge and that rail to where you could control them and the funny thing is is like people are still trying to replicate that moment in surfing people are riding boards that are literally 50 years old in some cases and being reverent of the stuff that was created by designers like simmons but if simmons was here today like for sure he would just get gravitated towards foiling. Like he was trying to use aerospace technology to put together <laughs> the best surfboard he could at the highest level of performance. He wouldn't be riding like a balsa board right now. And he wouldn't be riding the equipment that he created. He'd be like, take me straight to like the best foil 
and just be geeking out on it. And so it is that interesting thing again. I think there's always been that part of surfing that was about that intersection of the best equipment and pushing it to the edge of what you could accomplish, but that it's been harder and harder to do and to find that feeling for people for a long time. Like, I think there's been in some ways like nowhere to go but backwards for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those early designs really worked. And it's just, I feel oh, like yeah. there's this thing where you have to always iterate and try to evolve, even if it's like fashion, I guess, in a way, where even though something is fully functional, it just, you have to change it. And well, yeah, I mean, like in surfing, one of the tragic stories like that is really the twin fin that mm -hmm. it got discarded a number of times to get us to the moment we're in where people are obviously really effectively surfing twin fins in any type of condition in a way that like you could argue allows for a lot of performance improvement or at least really unique great feelings of speed that thrusters don't but that, I mean think about the twin with Mark Richards won four world titles consecutively and was riding twin fins and then Simon Anderson comes in with a thruster and within a couple of years like everyone shifted away from twins and quads and kind of threw out these design ideas that all got revisited 15 or 20 years later but it took a long time there was just this homogeny of thought that oh you had to be on thruster and partly because of that idea you couldn't surf a twin fin in good waves but obviously now you scroll through Instagram and it's like a million videos of guys just shredding in barrels on twin fins. Yep. Yep. I, my favorite board is a 6.6 mid-length twin. Oh, yeah. That's it. the other thing I'm doing right now. My quiver is like <laughs> gone down to a foil, a 5.2 fish, like a 6.4 twin fin, and then like straight up to guns. It's pretty funny that literally the performance shortboards are just not even a, a part of my life anymore. I'm not even ordering them. And the ones I have left over on the rack, I probably should just sell because I don't think I'm gonna ride them again. I mean, I'm just gonna be on something that's, yeah, offering different feelings, especially for my skill level than, than that. I'm just not gonna be going straight up and down, just blowing the tail out, doing crazy turns at whatever, late 40s. It's, it's not where I'm at anymore. I can like enjoy the glide and barrels and, and different feelings. Yeah. Have you started to look at the ocean through a different lens? Has, has... Yeah, for sure. I mean, and just the whole world. My father is living in Europe now. He left the States and he spent a lot of time on a little Greek island. And I have surfed there, but now I'm just thinking through, man, I, like, I could go back there this summer and there's just crazy like Meltemi winds that nuke down the Aegean Sea for months on end. And I don't know what people are doing there, but I'm sure there's opportunity. And so that like, I think literally it's opened up the whole world to me or going to a lake somewhere and being like, maybe I can learn to dock start. Whereas <laughs> before you couldn't have got me to do it. I would have just been like, no, I don't want to miss four or five days at my local spot. And uh, sometimes I think of this guy, Dale Webster, who people might've heard of because he surfed the most number of consecutive days, certainly holds the Guinness Book World Record for it. I think his original goal was to surf a, a lunar cycle. And starting in the early seventies, he tried to surf for 28 straight years, every single day, three waves to the beach. And only to find out that at some point someone corrected him is like a lunar cycle, that's a month you're talking about. It's 28 days, not 28 years. <laughs> and so he extended his goal and went into 30 plus years and it like kept on going and going. And just incredible dedication and like totally his whole life was set up in order to do this. And I think he got a job as a, a janitor, I, I think at a local school and was, because he could do it at night, it was after the kids left and he could just surf every day. 
And, but then you start thinking about it and he's like, well, I couldn't go on a trip because what if it took more than a day to get there? So let's just, no more travel, no traveling to get good waves and warm water. And literally he was just like in fear of getting hurt and then being out of the water with an injury. And you think about it at his age too. I mean, I, I was there the, the day that he said was going to be his like last day consecutively. And it was this local beach that does not have the best waves day in, day out, certainly. And he just grinded it out over the course of, I think it was like in the neighborhood of 40 years. And just this amazing accomplishment on one level, but also I didn't want my world to be that small. Like I wanted it to have, be a bigger world. And I think that's what we're talking about with boiling, just making you see the, not just the ocean differently, but the entire world differently. Yep. And pioneering new spots, right? Like how hard is it to find a new surf spot right now? and your dad living on on the island, you might go there and you might be the first guy to foil there or find a new spot there. And that's really cool. Yeah, being back in that era of a sport is incredible. It is just like a time machine. And uh, to be able to see the world in that way and do that, I mean, it's like really incredible. And I think it takes, takes me back to that idea of like how great foiling is as a way essentially to like soft quit surfing. Some of my friends have just gone for the full quit. Like I surfed a lot day in, day out about a decade ago with Matt Warshaw, who people might know from doing the history of surfing and encyclopedia of surfing and kind of like top of the game and writing about surfing. And he's pretty much done. Like he'll dabble on a vacation here and there or a trip and get a little session in, but it got to the point for him where he was just ready to kind of be like, all right, I don't need to do this anymore. I want to do the other stuff there is to do in life. He kind of rounded the bases in surfing. And I think he wanted to round the bases in life would be all in on other stuff like being a dad and I think that's rad and that like for me it definitely got to that feeling in surfing where I had done like probably enough stuff that I was going to do where just so many rad experiences across a lifetime of surfing of probably getting big waves and getting to be out at spots like Mavs and survive and definitely not be the, the gnarly guy out there getting the best wave of the day but just to be out there and get a left and have that experience and just kind of like check the boxes like I'd seen people I knew get attacked by sharks. I've seen people I knew drown. It just kind of got that feeling where you're like, how much more do I need to do out here? I think I've done this. Like getting to the point where you just, yeah, like looking for a way out almost. I find that the risk reward, and so if you've spent a lifetime surfing, to get that adrenaline response, you start pushing limits really hard. And then by moving into a new sport like foiling, you're resetting all of that. You talked about at the beginning of the show, adrenaline paddling in to little waves on foil. Is that a part of, of this whole thing for you? Are you starting, you get a better chemical response from foiling and is the risk reward better? I know you've got a young family. Yeah. That's something I think about. Yeah, I mean, it's been a weird year for me, honestly, in terms of thinking through the risks in general in surfing because somebody could look at the surfing I've done over the course of my life from the outside, I'd be like, shit, you were taking a lot of risks. Like we were on boats in the Menowais and like the first year I was there with not even a radio on the boat, let alone like safety equipment and surfing these shallow reefs and pulling into barrels and then surfing maps before inflatable vests or when there was no jet skis out there and trying to do it on the days when no one would be out so you could get a wave out there because I didn't want to deal with the crowd and other spots that are isolated around here and but it never felt that risky to me at that point i wasn't really like in tune with the risk and maybe it's not being that old yet and i i heard the show you did with sebastian younger i think it was right who Mm -hmm. talked about like the adaptive benefit to people in their 20s taking risks where you get to a point and 
I think he kind of pretty much told you that, yeah, it's stupid for you to be doing that still. If you have a family in your 40s, it's kind of pathetic. But obviously, I've still been doing it. And I've seen more friends suffer the, the negative consequences, I think. As I get older, maybe I'm just noticing more, like I just didn't notice before. But this year in particular, I had an experience where I was surfing with one of my, the guys I've surfed with for 20 plus years around here, a great surfer. He's like a, used to be a Tabarua boatman and really skilled, competent surfer. And we were surfing like a, a day at a isolated beach that was chest high, head high, mellow waves, having fun, kind of pushing each other. I loaned him my board, which was a, 6'4 twin that I had gotten and it's like you got to try this thing it's so fun and he was shredding on it having fun just a couple of us out in this lineup at this point and these two kids paddle out and I didn't know them and these are places still where you kind of know everybody so it was a little bit weird and there was almost a part of me that was going to kind of be like why do you guys have to paddle out onto our peak when there's this huge beach here but I was like you never whatever it's it's just give them the benefit of the doubt. I was trying to get away from that whole negative surfing thing, like hoarding of resources. And I was like, oh, you never know when you need help. In my mind, I kind of heard that voice saying that literally, never know when you need help. And so I was, gave the kids a shaka and it, all good. And uh, I'm talking to my other friend and all of a sudden, the guy who's the great surfer, Adam, he's gone. And I just have this feeling kind of like, where's Adam? And I said to my friend, where's Adam? And he said, oh, he went back to the car. He's probably switching off your board. And uh, then, I just, it just didn't feel right. Just instantly a really bad feeling and started looking for him and spotted finally my board floating in the shore break at this steep beach about 200 yards down the beach or something. Oh, God. I see the board floating and then I see him floating face down and screamed to my friend who's a little bit inside of me and we start sprint paddling towards the beach and the girlfriend of one of the, the two kids who was there was right on the beach next to my stuff. And I screamed to her to call 911. And she actually had a phone and the phone actually had signal, which we don't always have here. And so she calls it in and then we run down the beach and we get to him and he's just like in this shore break, blue, like definitely has been out for a while and probably five minutes or something since we saw him. So I've taken a CPR class. It's been a long time. It's been 20 years or something. I'm not doing the stuff I should be doing, surfing big waves, like going and doing those big wave risk assessment classes or any of that shit kind of just winging it largely i'm not doing the training all year long i'm like just hanging out with my kids and for me the training's more mental it's just like being prepared <laughs> mentally to feel like you can get through heavy situations and for other people i think that comes from the feeling of having put in all the work and for better or worse that's just not me but definitely there was that moment where it's just fuck we are not prepared for this like we have not thought through how to deal with a situation like this we don't have the right training so we couldn't even get him out of the shore break pretty much. I mean, like, it's this like super steep, soft sand beach and we're getting hit by like, six foot waves and oh. just getting him through. And I was yelling at my friend to start compressions on his chest in the shore break, literally, while we were still trying to drag him up the beach. Like finally these two kids that I was about to like tell the fuck off and surf somewhere else, get down to help us. They help us get him up the beach. We start doing CPR, trading off and uh, went through just the 911 call goes through, the girlfriend gets the phone to us, they put it on speaker, we have the woman at the dispatch center, 911, walking us through compressions and breaths, which was rad because like you can definitely in the moment kind of lose track of that rhythm. And uh, we're working on him and this is five minutes, like 10 minutes and I'm doing the math in my head and uh, just kind of thinking through that I'm gonna have to live with this and I'm not gonna stop. I said to the kids, like we're not stopping till someone makes us stop. And uh, we just kept grinding it out. And uh, they, they released the 911 call to us later on. And I think it was literally 
in the neighborhood of 15 minutes that we worked on him before he started coughing a little bit. And wow. straight blue, like not breathing, just seemingly definitely, if not 100% dead, mostly dead for a really long time. I mean, I had definitely got to the point where I was like, he's done, but I'm not gonna stop. And uh, so we get him coughing a little bit and uh, just keep working on him. And by the time the helicopter came, he was starting to kind of be able to vocalize a little bit. And yeah, they took him away in the helicopter. And at that point, like I was just thinking through his wife and his daughters and the impact this was gonna have on them because I just couldn't see any world in which he was the same. Like I thought he was pretty much gonna be a vegetable after that long without breathing. And I like literally had his stuff and his truck and like I got in his truck and drove it to his house while my friend followed behind. And by the time we had gotten there 20 minutes away, like we had gotten a call from one of the, the firefighters here who I know that he had regained consciousness in the helicopter and was talking. And wow. they intubated him and he like was talking fine a day later. like released him from the hospital a couple days later after there weren't issues with fluid in his lungs. And uh, so, yeah, he's still around. And huge shout out to the 911 dispatcher. And he went and visited them later. And there was a woman there who had been working there for 40 years and said that this was like the most emotional call in her whole career. That was like literally like the thing that kept them going was like hoping that they could have outcomes like this. And that like in 40 years of doing this, it felt like one of the, the craziest, literally the craziest one that they had ever had working and just thinking through how heavy that is to be in that profession, helping people and having most of the shit go wrong. Mm. Like here we are just like on some level kind of stumbling through the whole thing like idiots and it actually worked out, but like definitely didn't feel very heroic. It was kind of more like you just had a really shitty experience, traumatic experience that just happened to flip at the last minute to something else. But for me, yeah, definitely it was like, changing my perspective on, on risk and, and surfing in terms of just seeing how quickly it can all go south. Like, mm -hmm. so, and that wasn't in big waves. You'd surf really big, heavy waves together a bunch of times. And like, also seeing how much needs to go right to have an outcome like that. And like, those other two guys that were there and Enzo, Cameron, Patty, who helped me, Sean as well, their girlfriend, Oceon, her name was like, huge credit to all those people like it would definitely took all of us to to get that outcome and obviously the, my friend adam for fighting through it all and like he said after the fact that he remembered kind of like hearing my voice like yelling at him to not die and could see himself from above or something and Whoa. just kind of a crazy experience all in all and yeah i don't know <laughs> what to take about it but it definitely changed my perspective on surfing a little bit after all that and that in some ways i'm kind of like okay these are the things we need to do to get our safety seen more dialed in and obviously go take your CPR classes and do that big wave risk assessment and all that stuff. If you can go do that shit, go do it. On the other hand, I feel like you just have no control over your fate at the end of the day. It is just this bizarre luck of the draw and same thing with sharks around here or anything else. You can try to do the things you can do to prepare for it, but you're just kind of like life involves a lot of risk and that that's okay. I think at the end of the day that you, you got to just go do the stuff you want to do in life. And like you think about all the time and effort people worldwide put into avoiding risk over the last few years. And just life is a risky business, no matter what you do. And like, mm. I think about it with foiling a lot though, all the same, I'm like well aware of the fact that like, I catch an edge in taco and like I can get that foil into my jugular or something. And 
<laughs> that's it. You're gonna like bleed out out there, especially if you're downwinding or something. I mean, I don't know what the actual data says. Like, I'd be curious to hear your take on like how dangerous you think foiling actually is. But it's been this weird experience for me of both like feeling like it's like a more risky and less risky activity. Like I'm in that adrenaline and feeling like what I'm doing could be pretty sketchy and dangerous really quick, even on a one foot wave. But on another level, I'm like just in a different risk track than I used to be. So it feels in some ways more controlled. Yeah. I mean, first off, that's an incredible story. And thank God it turned out the way that it did, right? Like, I mean, just dumb luck on some level. Like, I think about all the people who have the same experience and do exactly what we did, probably yeah. better, but they lose that person. And yeah, so I don't know what the lesson is from all of it, honestly. I think the lesson is don't stop. I mean, that's what I took out of it. Yeah, for sure. I think that was important. But, geez, I don't know. I mean, in terms of foiling, like, what do you think? I mean, I'm at the point now where even a year in, I feel like I'm able to much more effectively control the risk, that I, I feel much more in tune with how to fall and what the foil is going to do and anticipating that. But then every now and then you'll have those experiences where like you're pushing it and all of a sudden you're just falling in a way you didn't anticipate. Yep. Of the people who are doing it seriously, like what has the kind of general experiences been in terms of injury and risk, you think? So, so Dave Kalam and I talked about this on a show a while back and I think we all went in with a thought that foiling was going to be incredibly dangerous. I actually decided not to get into it for a couple of years because I thought it was going to be so dangerous after I saw it for the first time. I actually got to ride a Kiahi setup in Hawaii 2017, 2016, 2017, and yeah. tacoed two or three times in a row. And I was like, fuck this. <laughs> this, is, this is super sketchy. And then two years later, the sport had evolved. And I think the the risk reward started to turn on it for me. But, you know, the question is where are the bodies buried? It's kind of like the steroids in the eighties thing. Everyone was doing steroids, <laughs> yeah. everyone should be dead. And it didn't really happen that way. In fact, there might be some benefits to it. I'm not advocating for that in any way, shape or form. But, you know, like I think it's a similar thing to that, to where we thought it was gonna be incredibly dangerous. It has turned out to be not as dangerous. There are some pretty heavy injuries that have happened, but Overall, when I get sent a lot of pictures of, of injuries and a lot of it's stitches, six stitches, eight yeah. stitches, stuff like that. And But I personally, knock on wood, I've had stitches a lot of times from surfboards and I've been hurt a lot more surfing than I have foiling. And I've foiled a lot more hours. If you look at like time on foil versus time on surfboard riding, I am probably, I've probably ridden a foil now much more than I have a surfboard in my life yeah. as far as actual riding time. And my injury rate is, has got to be one eighth or one tenth what it was. And I, I send it to a certain degree. I'm not sending it like some of my buddies are like Austin and some of these guys doing flips and stuff, but I don't. Yeah, that's avoid. interesting though. I mean, I definitely, that has been so far pretty similar to my experience that I, I hurt myself literally in the first week foiling, uh, like just semi tacoed and landed on my ribs on the edge of the board uh, but it was definitely like one of those things that as you it was a beginner's injury for sure i think that people talk about where the risk is in activities and that it seems like maybe foiling is a little bit more one of those things where like actually your beginning is where there's the most risk and then i agree with that it, it goes down for a while and then maybe it goes back up again at the, the really high end of skill level which is actually like the opposite of a lot of other activities i think where 
the, the medium level of skill is where people start having taking the most chances and they're overestimating their ability and that's where the most risk is that like sometimes the really experienced people know how to mitigate and the beginners are so cautious that they're not getting themselves into bad situations but i think foiling is a little unique that you can be a beginner and get yourself into a pretty darn bad situation really quickly if you just don't know how to fall away from the foil and obviously that whole idea of trying to correct particularly for surfers like i had to definitely kind of focus on the idea of not trying to correct um, mm-hmm. and rebalance because that in surfing it works you can do that and get yourself out of trouble and not fall but just a different story in foiling i think that it's interesting the ways that surfing does and doesn't help you if you transition to foiling and that like you do have to try to kind of hammer out some of those bad habits for foiling that are good habits for surfing and same thing with leaning back um, mm-hmm. that surfers like want to lean back on a steep drop obviously if they surf big waves or something and even that doesn't actually work like you're better off stomping your front foot just the way you would a half pipe but they think that that's what's going to prevent you from pearling when that obviously on a foil it's like kiss of death you're just going to get ejected so it's an interesting one i definitely think there is that like middle ground that you're talking about though where like you're able to control for the risk a lot better but i do think that i don't know what you guys do in terms of like safety protocols for the downwinding stuff you do but i've got to assume on some level it's one of those things that's going to evolve and people will look back on the the risks that were taken on kind of early downwinding and marvel at like kind of how little the safety stuff had been thought through in comparison to where it will get one day i assume one day there'll probably be a lot more care taken and it'll kind of look back and see it as more of a cowboy era which is definitely the way it was with big wave surfing that we look back now and mm-hmm. i've talked to those guys who are some of the best big wave surfers in the world about stuff that we did or still do in northern california where there's just no safety ski like no vests paddling long distances where you just break a leash and probably you're done and they're just like man you guys are idiots like why would you ever put yourself in that situation let alone if you have kids just irresponsible and now there's so much that those guys are doing the guys are at the top of that sport or investing in guys doing safety on skis and additional spotters and train has gone through the the hard yards to be able to do that activity at the highest level while mitigating the risk and I think it'll be interesting to see where that goes for foiling. I'm sure way more than I do about what people are already doing, but just seems like those downwind runs, you're in the middle of nowhere at a certain point. I I think it depends on where you are. Here in Florida, we're going parallel to the coast. And so I'm probably never farther out than three quarters of a mile or so. Yeah, that's not that bad. It's it, you could swim it like yeah. I in, in a worst case scenario, you could swim it. And as far as safety things, I always wear an Apple watch because it's communication and I have location turned on. So my yeah. wife can always see where I'm at. She's like the most supportive, amazing person in the world. And generally, a lot of times is, is helping me with rides on those runs, which that's let, amazing. Oh, it's so amazing. And then you always have to wear a leash. I mean, even on the small days, you have to wear a leash because your board can just get away from you and it can get away from you at really bad times. And it's happened to me before where I'm just, I'm doing a shore runner. And so I I hate wearing leashes And here. We don't really have to wear leashes because we're never near surfers. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think leashes, you need to wear a leash if you're around people to protect other people. But I think from a personal perspective, leashes are really dangerous when you're foiling because it keeps the foil within six feet of your body. And like, one of the things I was going to say about the risk before, because you asked that is, as you get better, you get to a point where there's no more randomness on the foil. At the beginning, everything kind of feels random. There's some things that are controlled, but then, you know, the taco, but there's a lot of warning signs before you taco. You can feel the vent, you can feel a little slight loss of lift. And there's three or four things that you can do in that situation to either regain it 
or if it's too far gone to bail in a way that's really safe. And so you get good at those. The leash puts you in more proximity to everything that's going wrong though. But so a lot of times here we'll start just doing a shore runner and then it'll, it, it'll the bumps will be better offshore. So you, you work from like a shore runner, which is kind of like in and out of the surf or within a couple hundred meters of the beach to pretty far offshore. And what happens every once in a while is you're out there and you, you, I don't come down off foil like that often anymore because of mistakes, but every once in a while, like you find yourself kind of in a desert where you're working really hard and then your mistakes, when you're that out of breath and you can get pretty out of breath when you're offshore because if you're prone, you just don't want to come down for any reason. And one time I fell, I like just breached trying to kick out into this next little bump and I fell in such a way, getting the board away from me that I kind of shot it out and it kind of caught a bump and started going away from me. So now I'm pretty far offshore. I'm really out of breath because I've just been digging really hard and my board's going away from me. And so you're kind of at this moment of, do I just chill and just swim in slowly or do I sprint to try to catch my board? And you're just in a cardio deficit. You're not like really in any danger, but you're just like in a bad spot, I guess. Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, like the, the cardio deficit stuff has been like literally a new unique experience for me, as I was saying. And so it is just, it cracks me up sometimes how out of breath I can get as I kick out next to some very nice person on a wave storm who's sitting there in one foot waves and like absolutely winded, like the little kid doing PE, just having to try to do the mile or something where you're ready to puke. It, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Just what a different experience it is. Yeah, that way. I, mean, I think I could like literally, I mean, drown with a 10 second hold down if at that peak cardio rate, I, I don't think I could make 10 seconds. Pedigo, yeah. my buddy Mike just had a fall on like a, a head high day after like a four or five connection surfing hard. So working on a smaller foil and he got held down for just a little bit. He said he was like freaking out underwater. This is a kid who's like incredibly fit. Yeah. Um, no, it's amazing. I mean like that, it definitely big wave surfing. It's one of those things that people really think that the hold downs are super long and half the time it's really not that different than the wave that's a quarter of the size or something but if you're freaking out or if you're winded like those are the times you, you get into bad situations sometimes that happens surfing ocean beach just because you can get stuck in that situation where you're trying to get back out and there's just step ladder sets and like you're just making it over each wave and that's kind of the only time i ever feel like you could get in a bad situation surfing bigger waves at ocean beach for me really is when you're you're in that hamster wheel moment of just trying to get over each wave and you're getting mm -hmm. more and more winded and each one just keeps being a little bit farther out than the next and we're talking about whatever triple overhead plus waves and you're on an ADO and you're paddling as hard as you can for 10 minutes straight getting over wave after wave after wave and then finally one just nails you and you're right at that apex moment where there's nothing you can do you just gotta take it fail your board and hope for the best hope your leash doesn't break but if you get into that situation and you're winded it's definitely a lot worse if that same wave hits you and you just got caught inside sitting waiting for it like really it's not that bad like the hold down isn't that long you can just get pushed in and it's fine but yeah the, the where you're at and obviously people panicking burns that oxygen the same way so it is interesting to see again like just how much of it is about managing breath and being in the moment and like those little things that people talk about in other disciplines in life that are like seemingly easy but not so hard to do for for people in some ways how are the 
hold downs and wipeouts at Ocean Beach, which I got to think is one of the heaviest beach breaks, at least in the US, if not around the world, and then versus a Mavericks type wave. I'm not a big wave surfer in any way. Yeah. I mean, I've worked really hard to kind of prod at the edges of surfing Mavs, go out there on days where it's on the ball and I can get a couple waves without getting like just nailed by a set. I've got caught inside by a couple sets there, but I've never had like the worst case scenario where you get kind of like dragged down into that cauldron of just that way it breaks so hard it's such a slab i think the people that you see pictures of it you never surf there the thing that is hard to understand is that that would be a wave that would be actually a pretty hard drop to stick and a hard wave to surf if it was like chest to head high that like it would still work you that thing is so thick and slabby when it's the the right numbers and conditions on the bowl and to take one of those waves in the head is just totally next level there's a reason some of the best big wave surfers in the world have drowned there over the years before in inflatables. Ocean Beach is not like that. Like you, no. can, you can take a picture of a nice big face that has a lot of height to it, but it's just not unloading the way that Mavs does with a slab like that. And it's actually, we're trying to find the hollow ones out there. It'll barrel when it's big, but it's not even like Puerto, where Puerto is like obviously more of an overgrown shore break type thing. And, just really coming out of deep water straight onto shallow sand. And it's not as heavy at Ocean Beach. I mean, I'm not trying to encourage people to go do it since there's already way too many people out there. <laughs> but I think that it is a more controlled risk in that way that like you, you can kind of just take one and get pushed in. You're not going to get held down that long. I don't know. For me, I, I think, again, a lot of it's just what you're comfortable with. I got to a level out there where I'd put in my time and felt comfortable with just about any situation it was going to throw at me. But if you're not, I think it can go wrong and be a lot scarier pretty quickly and there's just nothing that like beats putting in your time i mean that's the thing with a lot of aspects of surfing and and foiling and anything else in life obviously that like a lot of it really is just about like how committed are you to this are you willing to put in the fucking time to figure out how to do it and i, I think there's i try to talk to my kids about this in life a lot you might be good at this thing and like it but if you don't actually do it if you don't put in the time and work at it like you're never gonna really get past a certain level and so much of it in life is just about putting in that time and that, like, I'm not a good athlete and I never was but like I just grinded it out with surfing I was just one of those kids who was totally committed to the ocean as a refuge from a certain age of my life where it felt like a thing that just a place I needed to be to kind of be okay and that, I think that's one of those things that actually ties together so many of the people who have gone to the highest levels in surfing definitely unlike me they actually have that athletic ability but a lot of it is just that that sense of grinding out the hours in the ocean and investing in it and being all in on it and i think for a lot of them too like you talk to them and what their stories were i had a chance to do this when i wrote about surfing and you realize how many of those people who are at the pinnacle of the sport were really like using the ocean as some level of refuge or therapy or there was shit going on in their life that they were trying to get away from and find a place that they could be okay that was the ocean for them and mm -hmm. i mean i think that there's still that aspect to so many of the people you see day in day out at a local beach who've gone all in on surfing and some of the spots around here it's like literally practically you feel like you're at a aa meeting or something that these are people who are like going to that beach every single day in order to try to not go and do the other thing that's going to be much more destructive in their life or to deal with the thing that was destructive in their life that got them to doing the destructive things. And from prison time to addiction to anything else, it is interesting to see how people are like 
often using surfing as a way to not do that. <laughs> and I think that you see that in some of the greats in the sport for sure. And like I had opportunity to hang out with some of those guys and see Andy in his prime and Kelly winning titles and be at some of those events. And it is just amazing to see the level of focus that they're bringing to it. Like I think a lot of that does come from that that foundation of being little kids who are just like needed to be in the ocean to have their life make sense. Do you think that's unique to surfing or do you think you could extrapolate that out to that level of obsession needed to become world-class in, in any endeavor? I mean, yeah, there's the 10,000 hours thing and like, that's all true. I mean, I think it's an interesting question to me though, like whether other greats and other sports also are getting to where they are partly because of in some ways using that sport as whatever you want to call it like a solve or therapy or i think to me that's kind of an interesting question whether like that pattern holds true and in surfing you could look at a few of the people who are around now and say okay maybe there was nothing that went on in, in that person's background that led them to seek refuge in the ocean that they just had a clean happy-go-lucky childhood and they still achieved great levels of competitive success but i think the people who really push the boundaries in surfing in terms of performance and style in particular, like the surfing that feels emotionally resonant for people later on, whether it's Curran or Andy or Kelly or other people, like you talk to them and like they all had shit happen in their life that like, I feel like that emotionality almost that comes through in their surfing mm -hmm. is from working through those emotions that like, there's no way to almost replicate that experience and get to the same level of whatever you want to call it like Sonny Garcia the, the power in one of those snaps and just the weight of the experiences of the Hawaiian people and his own upbringing and stuff there's a lot he was working out and a lot of anger in that surfing that made it magical and like mm -hmm. I don't know that you get that from people who have just this like clean slate like happy-go-lucky kind of upbringing I think that to a certain extent I think you could you're say only that you're going to get that level of drive and emotion in that activity if you're like we're working working through shit as you're doing it i mean maybe that speaks to the art side of surfing because you you could definitely say the same thing for music right like the greats yeah and i do think that surfing i think what i love about surfing and actually what i love about foiling on top of surfing is the amount of expression that you have i feel like foiling is a very big canvas for all sorts of really unique expression. Oh yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and for me, some of it is about expressing that, that knowledge, like that is the thing that, back to that idea, I guess, of the locavore or whatever you want to call it, like it's a, it, it can be this celebration of that investment of the mm -hmm. time you put in to understand a natural environment. And there's a little spot near where I live that's this podunk, mushy, little longboard wave that has a bunch of disjointed shallow spots of reef out there that don't really connect up, kind of a San Onofre vibe. And I used to longboard it as a kid. It's literally a wave so mushy you can't basically ride it on anything other than a longboard because there's just these giant flat spots. And so obviously you know where this is going. Oh yeah. For foiling, you're like, it's a playground. And it's been so gratifying for me to take that knowledge of the different takeoff spots on that reef at different tides and be able to map it onto what you can do with a foil and say, yeah, like I can take off only on this little chip of whitewater out here at this tide, 
but I know that there's these four other shallow spots of reef that will break on a lower tide that right now are just feathering and standing up, but I can pump right over to them and tap right into that zone and then link that section of reef to this one over here and be able to put together that run. And I don't know if it's an emotional expression when you get that right and draw all those lines right. And the idea for me foiling, it's almost like playing drums or something where like each individual action isn't that difficult, but especially in your first year of doing it, being able to do them all in syncopation mm -hmm. and keep that rhythm is obviously like the difference between somebody who's skilled and has put in the time and, and hasn't. And it just takes a while. To, same thing if you're playing drums to be able to coordinate your right foot, your left foot and your right hand, your left hand, and everything's doing a different thing, but they're all in syncopation with each other it just takes time and effort but when you get that right that's so rad to be able to express that overlap that onto your understanding of your local environment and to be able to like literally picture the bottom topography of a reef like that that i've surfed since i was literally like 11 years old but then put it together in a new way where you can connect those dots and it's it, yeah, pretty magical yeah <laughs> i love that like we just found a new spot here there's a an inlet and the tide starts pulling and you get this hard onshore, like northeast wind, which is our worst conditions. Like the northeast conditions here, it's kind of like when we had the least on offer up until about a month ago. And now all of a sudden we've unlocked this new spot and we're in this beautiful phase of it right now where we found a cam that's in the river and any of the, the days we're like, we're like all watching it all day long, trying to figure it out. Cause when it goes, it's insane, but we don't have it quite dialed yet to know the exact wind direction that makes the best bumps and it's yeah just this oh bump. yeah it's so cool we had a similar experience here where you'll go in when the tide starts being hard outgoing because we're dealing with the same kind of deal like the inlet of an intertidal lagoon and you get just like the nuking outgoing rip going through it and it just mm -hmm. tears up the waves and even when i was first starting to foil i would be like okay i gotta surf the incoming to slack and then i started edging into that outgoing and realizing that it's just creating this different energy. It's a little bit akin, I guess, to downwinding, right? Where people mm -hmm. are looking for a current going against the bumps. And so it would take these little wind swells. And if you started pumping off into the middle and the deep spot in that channel, all of a sudden the outgoing tides going against them and creating this little miniature version of a downwind playing field where you just have all this energy to work with as the current's ripping against it. And just to figure that out, it's again, it's so gratifying. You're like, wait, here's this thing that for 30 years I've avoided and been like, oh, now this is ruined. It's time to go in because the rip's tearing it up. And in fact, there was all this just like energy and stoke to be mined hiding under the surface there, just like with us ignoring it for decades. You know, it's just kind of mind blowing. Yep. I'm shocked the property values in Jacksonville haven't gone up yet now that foiling is so good here. Yeah, I'm, I mean, it's not cheap to live in the Bay Area, so maybe I should be looking at Jacksonville real estate. It's oh, man. It's, I mean, for the amount of stoke for property value and proximity to the beach, it doesn't get much better. Yeah, it's again, it's all science fiction. I mean, just imagine like the <laughs> shit Kelly Slater took for being a Florida surfer, and now it's like everyone's going to be on foils with capes on, virtual <laughs> reality goggles, and the next decade living in Jacksonville. I love it. Let's switch it up a little bit. You live near Silicon Valley and you work in the tech industry along with being writer. Let's talk about the influence of social media on surfing as a whole and kind of how that might dovetail into to foiling and its lack of adoption. And then also 
kind of in what you're seeing right now as social media's influence on progression in a sport? I think those are two interesting things that, that you probably yeah. have some unique insight on. Yeah, there's so much you, you could say, and obviously everyone's experiences are different, and I'm coming at this as somebody who's in my 40s and lived in a time before all this, right? I mean, it's just like oxygen for kids now. So, and I can't believe I just said like kids now, as if I'm an angry old man, I'm going to wave my cane at them and yell at them pretty soon. <laughs> but at the same time, I do think there's just this really interesting thing going on in terms of the way it's changed people's experiences and expectations. And I, I used to joke around even a little bit that like, I wonder if we're just not going to have any groms anymore because they won't be able to deal with that fixed level of the waiting involved in surfing, like the amount of time between waves and sets, whether the attention span is just going to be so limited by the constant hits of dopamine that like you're getting through short form video now on TikTok or every other platform that's trying to copy it. That, that level of gratification will be the expectation to where kids will just no longer be able to put up with waiting through a lull. Like that will be just like a stretch of time that feels to them like an eternity in a completely unacceptable way. And that will be the end of like kids surfing. And it doesn't seem to have gone that way, which I guess is a great thing. But I, I do think that it's interesting to see the ways that like people's perspective on the activity has changed based on experiencing it on social media. And I mean, like, in some ways, just like the kook slams impact of those videos that like people see people doing stupid shit all the time and living through it. And like, I definitely see a generation of younger surfers who doesn't have the same level of respect for the danger they're putting themselves into through some of these activities because they've seen so many people live through that wipeout already on social media. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. And I think you're seeing people interact with sport in a different way because of that. You're seeing people get in way over their heads sometimes. And if someone tries to point it out to them, like they think that they're getting flexed on by somebody who's trying to be a local. So, no, I'm actually just trying to keep you from killing yourself because you clearly don't know what you're doing. But then on another level, obviously, like people are able to make the culture of surfing whatever they want it to be because they can share more of their personal vision of it without that filter. And that like, I entered into writing into surfing or writing about surfing right at that moment where this was all changing. Like I probably only got a chance to write about surfing because of the internet. Like it was right at that era before social media was a big thing, but where kind of blogs were starting and people were reading about surfing online and it, the, the stranglehold of the magazines on surf culture was getting loosened really quickly by how you could access that information online and get that kind of constant stream of images and articles about surfing. And obviously people, it used to be a big deal to get a magazine. Like you'd wait for a month and it was a really amazing thing to get the latest issue of Surfer and get to see the pictures and hear about what had happened in contests months ago. And now it was just that, again, instant gratification. And I think that it led to people just being almost like numb to how amazing some of this stuff is. I think that like you can see that experience definitely if you just start going down the rabbit hole of Instagram or any other social media platform where you're just seeing this mind-blowing imagery of the best waves on earth, wave after wave. And I think it is detrimental to your own enjoyment of the activity at a certain point. Sure, you're getting inspiration and sure you're getting stoked, but it's probably not that different 
to a certain extent than the experiences of people who have porn addiction and are just like looking at porn all day long and then unable to find any level of like fulfillment or interest in actual sex with a real person because they're just like flooding their brain with all these images of fucked up shit that like real life can't hold up to. And I think that like you can definitely run the risk of having that same level of experience with I think just how magical surfing in the ocean is if you're just like seeing the videos of chopes and everything else it's like i don't know i i limit myself right now to uh, 10 minutes a day and probably even that has a negative impact overall on me but then there's just enough of that positive benefit through the connection and inspiration maybe mm. like i reached out to you on instagram and here we are so there are those clear benefits to it that it's hard to escape it just kind of sucks that they're controlled by this handful of companies that's profiteering off of it and that that is allowing essentially all of us to be caught in that algorithmic experience of having the content force fed to you and keeping us there, changing your perspective on the world, the way you interact with other people. As a parent, obviously, like, I worry about that for my kids, that like, it's less about the way that they're gonna use technology and more the impact that technology's already had on them through an entire generation that like, has seen their parents focus on these devices instead of their kids or being in the moment with our kids. I think that's like the foundational experience for kids now of watching your parents be on this device instead of talking to you and not even having visibility into what they're doing on that device. Like all they can see is you and the phone. Like they're not seeing what you're doing on the phone even unless they look over your shoulder. Whereas like it used to be that a kid would sit there and watch mom or dad cook a dinner and could see what they're doing. And that's a very different thing to grow up seeing the people around you like partake in an activity and then learning how to do it where there is this sense of it as being this very isolated closed experience in the way that it impacts your ability to I don't know connect with the people around you and I think that like it's a double-edged sword we're connecting right now because of technology and um, mm -hmm. at the same time it's obviously making it so much harder in general for people to connect with those who are actually most proximate to them the ones who are like right in front of them that they see every day and uh, that's not to be underestimated in terms of the potential like negative impact on people's lives if you're unable to actually connect to the people who are like around you every day like that's a pretty big deal <laughs> so i don't think i answered half your question there there's a lot of different directions we could go but i think that in terms of like surfing and surf culture on the one hand it's this amazing opportunity for people to control their own narrative and share their experiences and make the culture what they want it to be as opposed to like that keys to the kingdom being held by the magazines. But on the other hand, it's like kind of just like the algorithm controlling it and whatever gets the most eyeballs. And that's like getting to the lowest common denominator phenomenon where it's maybe not as intentional and thoughtful in terms of shaping something that we can all be proud of. It's just like whatever gets the most traction. Wow, there's a lot of ways we could go off of that. I love that. I was blown away when, when Kai Lenny was recently on the show we talked about social media a little bit and he said, and I'm not going to get the quote right, but it was something to the effect of he feels a pressure to always be outdoing himself so that what he's yeah. going to post is going to be relative. And you think about someone who is at the absolute peak of a number of board sports and I, even in shortboarding now, like he's absolutely ripping, like he's there on all, all the levels and in, in all the sports to feel pressure. If he's feeling the pressure, think about the cascade of like effect of everyone who is not at that level to feel 
that amount of social pressure, just more anxiety of what you're posting. I actually just did a, about a year now where I decided that there's one style of, of foiling that I really enjoy and it's just hard carves and just decided to not care about the radical side of things and just really to spend, maybe it was like the last eight to nine months, just working on how I can push this and because it was what I enjoyed doing. But it's an interesting one to where like through what I'm doing with the podcast and stuff, I, I still post online and to just see how it's, how it doesn't go in the, the same viral places. Like the other day, I just did like the one little like foam bash turn and that thing goes super viral, right? It's and it, that there's that dopamine hit that you get from that and it makes you want to go out there and do that again. It's really hard if you don't want to be on the same path as the algorithm is on. It's hard to stay focused on the path that you want to be on because you know, you're not getting that same feedback loop or it's, it's deadened somewhat. That was an interesting one for me yeah. to kind of understand. Yeah, I'm honestly not sure why that content is resonating for people. If it's because it actually just looks cooler or it's because it looks more like surfing and people want to see turns that look more like high performance surfing turns. And it is, it's obviously this gap between how something feels and how something looks, right? That mm -hmm. like, if you're doing activity because of how it feels for you, not how it looks for other people, like that some of the best moments in foiling don't photograph as well as those high performance moments do, I think just because of a lot of things. It's like the angle, it's the, what we're used to. It's like literally, yeah, I mean, you, you could take a drone shot maybe that would show some of the magic of just like that feeling of glide or something, but it's just a short form video thing too. You can't show a 40 minute run on a short form video, like right. how you sum that up. But I do think it's really interesting in terms of where it's gonna take the sport and uh, whether again, like we see the equipment and the, the performance is being geared more towards that like high performance era thing just because that's what looks good on Instagram and people riding specific foils and high aspect that might not be functional for other parts of your overall game because that's what looks good on the Instagram short or anything else. And I, I guess for me, I'm still living this like pretty, I don't know, I guess antiquated lifestyle in which I, the decisions of what I do every day are not based on like how it's going to perform on social media. And that I agree with you that not just for Kai, but for an average 17 year old, like literally a lot of their decisions on what they're going to do that day probably are tied into what are they going to post and how is it going to represent them as a person? And yeah, it is pretty wild when you think about it. And I think that it's not an easy job being a pro surfer right now. And that, that sport really changed because of this, that I came into it at a time where there's irony here. And that like, I did some of the writing through like surf lines, uh, power rankings. That was a thing that if anyone was into pro surfing in a decade ago, they might remember that I read it. after every contest, there would be yep. these surf line power rankings. And that was a thing that I pitched to surf line and wrote for the first couple of years it was around. And they were kind of like pretty acerbic and could be quite funny, hopefully, and quite cruel in moments in terms of how I was analyzing the performance of those athletes. And uh, it was kind of a new experience for them because before that there had only been the magazines and the magazines were all positive for the most part and that they weren't exposed until first something like those power rankings and then very quickly social media to like more of the negativity or criticism associated with being a professional athlete. Like surfing was small enough that they didn't have to deal with the way that the sports section in a newspaper always was critical of athletes who were mm -hmm. maybe not 
performing at a high level. And I look back on it now, and I don't think I really understood at the time, in some ways, just like the impact it had on them as people to read even like what to me were very clearly kind of like entertainment value analysis of their surfing in a contest that often had very little even to do with them or their surfing. It was just like an opportunity for me to riff on culture and the ridiculousness of life. But man, it impacted those guys. I definitely remember when I first started doing it, I was doing it from behind just like a commenter or a troll or <laughs> anything else in the internet era. And then I started going to the contests and like I would write about it after hanging out with those guys. And I was in the competitor's tent with Andy at that contest in Chile when he won the search event. And we were just sitting there shooting the shit and seeing the way that they reacted to him and Slater and the other guys on tour. And like, we were talking about the stuff I had written and you could see how much of a toll it had on some of those guys, particularly the younger ones. Like when Jordy was a rookie, like I think he still won't speak to me. He was so pissed at the stuff I wrote with, about him as a rookie. And other guys totally used it as like, fuel. Kelly was like that. Like he read stuff I wrote about him. And then all of a sudden I get this email before a contest back in, I don't know what, this must've been 2007 or eight. And uh, he, he was literally like pinging me before the event on email. And he's like about to paddle out in about 15 minutes for a heat. And he was going back and forth with me, kind of like pushing against some of the stuff I had said. And I was just like, what is this about? Like, I've never met this guy. And he's like literally trying to interact with me, which now is completely on trend for Kelly and his personality. You see he does it in social media all the time. But that he was like using this to literally fuel his performance in that he, like he wanted to prove people wrong, show that he was better or whatever it was, like that, that need to show his ability and that he was using that criticism as fire. But for other people, it's the exact opposite, right? That they like just leads to really poor kind of mental health based on worrying about what other people think. And like, subsequently, I know there was quotes from like Luke Stedman, who I wrote about and Luke Stedman, who probably don't, doesn't ring a bell for a lot of people. He was an Australian pro surfer who was a great pro surfer, but more of a journeyman in his competitive career. And uh, also had kind of done some male modeling and was notorious for being a little bit of that kind of more pretty boy type of surfer. So I made fun of all this naturally and his vanity, which was, on some level, totally unfair. Literally, he ended up going to a sports psychologist because of it, and also almost making the top 10 one year, partly to prove me wrong. And I met the guy in Bali, finally, and like, his head was about to explode, like, actually figuring out that I was the guy who had ridden this shit, and that he was sitting there looking at me, and we had just had a pleasant conversation before that, and then all of a sudden, it was just like, he just didn't even know what to do with it. And I look back on some of it and I can't say it's all positive. I think that like where that all ends up to a certain extent is nowhere good. And maybe people in surfing have seen Beach Grit. Um, mm -hmm. And like, I, I did a little work at Stab with Derek Riley, who started Beach Grit. And uh, when he was first starting it, he reached out to me and I think they, they wanted me to be part of it on some level. And I just didn't want to go personally where that was going, which was that idea of essentially on some level, it is like clickbait, that like you were trying to get people to click on articles because that's the source of revenue and that you'll say whatever needs to be said in order for people to click on it and drive that engagement. And for me, it's just not what I wanted to be doing in my life, particularly when it has an impact on actual people and like their lives. And if you're a public figure, you're in sport, 
Like you can kind of argue that there's a reason for all of it, but on another level, it is just, I think people really do underestimate the impact of all that stuff on people. And it's legitimate, whether you're an athlete or a kid. And yeah, I guess I wanted to go back to just writing about the parts of surfing that I felt passionate about that meant something to me, as opposed to that level of kind of like critique or analysis or being known for that. Did you another long-winded answer that <laughs> probably doesn't answer your question? No, but but I loved that. I, I thought that was so. Did it change your approach when you started to spend time with the athletes? Did your writing change from going behind the screen to yeah? It did it. Yeah, for sure. I think that it was hard. Obviously, you have to be a pretty screwed up person on some level to have it not mm -hmm. impact the way you look at it. And I think that it was really interesting again to see how that's how you get to the surfing world that I'd grown up experiencing through magazines was that everyone knew each other. It was actually a really small industry. And uh, talking to Matt Warshaw again as an example, when he was editor at Surfer, he was writing profile pieces of those people. It was like this really small community of people that he had probably grown up competing against a little bit in some cases when he did professional surfing or you go to the party with them. And it's pretty hard to have an objective perspective on somebody when the relationship is that close, that there was just so much kind of, it was such an interwoven community of the industry people and the professional surfers and the magazines and the writers that like, there was that kind of, uh, it, it led to obviously having to take into account the impact on that whole ecosystem whenever you said something. And one of the things that people I think enjoyed though about my writing was that I, I was a little bit of an outsider to all that. So I was able to be detached from it and just kind of go in and maybe be a little bit more honest about stuff that other people were not saying. And I think that that level of honesty connected for people that felt like we had been dealing with this kind of varnished version of things for a long time and that that doesn't, isn't usually probably as interesting and it's not as human. And I think that at the best case, you want people to have an ability to choose obviously like what stories they tell and not have it be chosen for them by somebody else. But I do think you want to try to get to that level of humanity shared through some level of vulnerability. And that, I think that holds true for these athletes too. And if their job is to be a public figure, which in the modern age of surfing, it, it almost inevitably is. It's only a handful of people who can make money off just the competition side of it. Like mm -hmm. part of it is sharing your life with people and that it, it, it kind of demands that level of being open to all of it, which is a hard thing. It's super, super hard. Like I think that the more I got to know those guys, a lot of them did have some really interesting stories and uh, there was so much of them often that was just not coming through in what you saw. And I think that's still true to this day that like a, a lot of those people are actually much more interesting than they appear, but they just don't know how to necessarily express that or, or get it out and uh, share it in a way that feels right to them. What's your experience been in the foil community so far? Thinking about ecosystems and sport. Yeah. I mean, super limited, like in that I'm in this place where there's, some foiling happening for sure. There's the people that I've gotten to know a little bit who are coming at it from more like the San Francisco, like in the Bay wind sport angle. They had kited and maybe then kite foiled and then winged and wing foiled. And they're coming at it from a different perspective, definitely. And there's very few crossover from the pure surf world. And so obviously it's so far, it's been much more friendly, much more open in a positive way, but also I'm just scratching the surface on it. I, I really haven't. In some ways it's like still right at the beginning here where I'm doing it on a day to day basis. It's like mm -hmm. there's five or six people who go out and 
a lot of them are on stand up setups because they came at it, I think from winging and that is more of like a, a natural trajectory. It seems like for people to go to doing stand up foiling with a strap, at least in the front foot, mm -hmm. if not both. It's interesting to see some of the differences in perspective that in some cases, those guys who come at it from winging haven't been through that experience of a hierarchical surf lineup and localism and all those things. And so that they're kind of just like pretty like, it's just not even part of the, the blueprint for them, like the etiquette of lineups. I think mm -hmm. that that's been one of the things that's been kind of interesting to see is like that intersection of a surf lineup and a foil lineup put together and the way that the surfers are viewing the foilers and the foilers are viewing the surfers and that like ideal world, I think it's like, would be better just to have totally separate scenes and that as much as people can find that, I think that's one of the beauties of foiling obviously is it lets you get away from crowds and other surfers if you know what to look for and where to find it. And I think it's great to try to find that and look for that and take advantage of the ability to, to be on your own. But when people are interacting in that lineup, I think there is that there's, we're, we're kind of just trying to figure it out right now. Right. I mean, what's the etiquette if you're going through multiples and like, there's another foiler sitting there waiting to get their chip in. Do they take precedence over the guy who's going for the multiple or does the guy going for the multiple share with the guy who's chipping in and try to give them room? Like, I think there's still some questions to be answered, honestly. And like, I don't know if there's like set norms around this where you all are foiling together, but definitely where I am, it doesn't seem to have quite gelled yet. And that, I think in general, just the idea of trying to give a lot of respect to other people and not be greedy is important at this stage in the sport that like i think it's it's good for people not to take too much just in general like mm -hmm. i always felt that way with surfing too that like, it's amazing how rarely people will give a wave away like at any skill level any spot it's like i was always trying to aware of that that like people who know me and surf with me probably are laughing at this point because i'm pretty notorious for getting a lot of waves and at the same time i have always tried to give waves to people when I can see it's a wave that they really want that I know isn't really the wave I'm looking for. Like no matter what their skill level is or anything, like just that idea of realizing sometimes that, Hey, like that might be the wave that makes someone else's day and isn't the wave that like I'm even looking for. But like, usually people will still just like really greedy mentality, just like take, take, take. And especially when you're traveling, having grown up in localized lineups, I was always hyper aware when you go on a trip and like, you're not at your spot, like, super super important to me to be respectful of the people who have put in the time and maybe you've been waiting for a wave for five minutes but there's people who've been waiting for that wave out there for 50 years sometimes like paying dues putting their time in at a spot and i don't care if i'm in position for that wave and like they got the last one i'll probably give them the next one too if i feel like it's a situation like that and then i'll take scraps and so i think it is interesting right now to see in foiling like how do we handle our ability in some ways to be pretty greedy and reaping those resources and getting a lot of waves in a lineup that people are all navigating together. It's like, you got to check yourself sometimes and just try to think, think through it, I think, and other people's perspectives. I don't know. What's your take in terms of how some of that stuff's mapping to the lineups that you serve? So it doesn't apply. We have a number of foil spots on our coast and generally there are no surfers out every once in a while. There's one or two, if there's one or two surfers out. I just let them have whatever they want all day. I don't care because the ride time, but like once you're at a point where you can kind of just cruise around on the beach. And so we also don't have defined breaks. We just have sandbars. So if there's a surfer one way, I just might grab a chip and just go down a couple hundred meters and 
you're kind of by yourself again. So yeah, it, it's an interesting one. Like the guys in Hawaii have definitely started trying to figure out, Kane was on the podcast and he talked about how he won't, he won't pump all the way back out to the lineup. He'll stop before the lineup and then paddle back out because it's it kind of makes some surfers nervous to pump around him. Uh, yeah. And so he's thought through that a whole lot and you might actually enjoy listening. I think it was the last time that he was on. He's going to come on again soon. But for us, it's just all about abundance. And like when we have, so we have a group of probably, you know, on, on a crowded day of boilers, seven or eight guys in the water, all prone, all pretty good. And generally speaking, if you're pumping back out, you just kind of keep pumping and connect to waves that no one else is paddling into, unless it's a really good section. And in that case, if it's a good section to hit, you might just call off the people, but there's usually just an abundance of foil time. And so no one's ever, I've never seen like someone get mad. Actually, I take that back one time. One of my buddies got mad at somebody else about dropping in on them, but that's one time in four years of foiling here that I've seen someone yeah, I mean upset at something that's ideal right to be able to take advantage of places like that and use it like that but i think for a lot of people mm -hmm. california hawaii maybe australia like obviously they're they're doing this still in lineups with surfers that are yep. sometimes really crowded even and i think that again i think surfers overestimate the danger to them but definitely it's also on the foilers to think through whether they're drawing the lines that really are respectful of other people's experiences or not and that like Definitely, I totally get it as soon as I started foiling. Like, I'd been in that position as a surfer before of having a foiler zip right by me an inch away. And you're kind of like, what the fuck? I'm like, why are you like buzzing me? But now as a foiler, I'm like, oh, like maybe that's like exactly where I kind of my pump is taking me there. And like, I know I can get that connection to the next wave if I just kind of go close to that surfer. But I'm definitely trying not to do that stuff as much as possible. And obviously, it goes without saying that like when I was learning, I was really conscious of staying away from mm -hmm. other surfers full stop. And I wouldn't go for a wave if there was somebody inside of me in a way that like I thought it was possible that I'm not yet at the point that I have enough control to guarantee that I can not put that person in a bad situation. I would just wait. Spent most of my first few months on the inside like of all the surfers at a lineup, literally just like right into the little kid zone where I started everything like totally no attempt to go out and be in that lineup. And I think you'll see, especially guys with on stand-up rigs who can more easily catch waves from the outside, sometimes they will just put themselves right into that lineup amongst all the other surfers. And I, I think, again, that's where you start getting at least the potential for some of those those frictions. And I think it will be important as the sport grows to like just think through some of that etiquette. And all of us is like still pretty early adopters of the sport to think through just like the culture we want to build and that idea of respect both for the people who've come before us, putting in a lot of time in sports like surfing and, and also for the people who are just beginning. And I think you got to balance it. And again, just like not coming at it from that place of greed and also thinking about the ability of the foil to get us away from people instead of near them. What do you want to leave us with, Lewis? This has been a great show. I can't believe we just lapped two hours. It's insane. Oh, geez. I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to listen to full two hours. Of it. I, they will. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a good question what to leave with. I think, like I said, I'm just trying to <laughs> trying to feel thankful every day for how lucky we are to be surfing in the ocean and obviously there's so many other situations all of us could be in in life like that at the same time like that really deep rich backlog of like anger and bitterness and surfing that can be hard to get away from and just again like people who know me have probably seen me anger 
it, like the bitter side come through at points, but I think it's pretty rad to find ways to try to just get into that being a Stoke Grom, even when you're an old man. Those are the people I look up to. Heroes, the guy, Larry Young, was a surfer in the local community here who passed away recently, and he was like that. Just had that Grom Stoke all the way till the end through decades and decades of surfing, starting with sessions with Phil Edwards and Mickey Dora in Southern California when he was a kid and going all the way into his last sessions, seeing all the changes around him. And he always found a way just to focus on that stoke and how lucky we are to be in the ocean. So however you can do that, that's what I'm spying to. And for me, it's foiling right now. I love it. Lewis, thank you for coming on the podcast. And yeah, stoke, this is a good one, man. Stoke, thank you. Yeah, Stoke, I really appreciate it, Eric, and everything that you know, you've done to kind of uh, and the people have been on the show to push the, the sport forward. I'm super appreciative of getting to slipstream off of all that. And uh, you just think about the journey people are going to go through learning now. It's going to be even better. Same kind of thing. So it's rad. I'm appreciative of all the time and effort people have put in to get the whole thing dialed up. Deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonson.